Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 53 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome author and historian Jeff Schessel, who served as a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton from 1997 to 2000. During his three years at the White House, Schessel became the deputy chief speechwriter and a member of the senior staff and played a leading role in drafting two State of the Union addresses among hundreds of other speeches. A Rhodes Scholar, Schessel received his master's in history from Oxford University in 1993 and has taught presidential history at Princeton University and as a founding partner of West Wing Writers. But today we'll primarily be discussing his new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War, just out from W.W. Norton. Schessel joins us from Washington, D.C. Jeff, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks for having me. First off, uh, set the scene for us. So your book begins really in 1957 when there wasn't even a NASA and the Soviet Union had already beaten the U.S. into space with the launch of the unmanned sat- satellite Sputnik 1. And it really took a long time, well, maybe not that long, but a while for President Eisenhower to even set up the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which we know today as NASA, which came about on October 1st, 1958, almost a year to the day from the launch of Sputnik. So why was the transition from the federally funded National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, to NASA such a long one? Well, Eisenhower's first instinct when Sputnik went up into orbit, as you said, in in October of 1957, was to minimize it. He wanted to calm everybody's concerns, uh, in part because he really wasn't concerned. He thought the whole thing was sort of silly. As he said it at the time, uh, they just put a small ball in the air. That was how he described it, and that was how he saw it. It really wasn't anything that consequential in his view. He knew the United States had its own plans to send up a satellite. He didn't think we were very far behind. He didn't particularly care that we were behind. As he said later, a little bit later in the space race, he said, look, we don't have to be first at everything, which is maybe a, a laudable point of view in life. But in the context of the space race, it, it really did not comfort the American people or the rest of the free world. The sense was that the, the Soviets got off to a very early and meaningful lead in the space race, and they didn't let up. After that, it was one first after another. It was a much, much larger satellite only a month later. Then it was a, a dog in orbit, the, the dog Laika. Then the Soviets were sending an uncrewed craft to the surface of the moon. Then they were sending a, a craft to photograph for the first time the far side of the moon. It was one spectacular achievement after another. And Eisenhower's instincts in every case, again, was to try to calm the American people and say this is not that significant. And by the way, we're doing our own thing. But by by the middle of, of 1958, it was no longer politically tenable for him to do that. Lyndon Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader, had been holding hearings beginning in late 1957 to try to alert the American people to the threat that the Soviets were posing in outer space. And so ultimately, Eisenhower came around to this idea of creating NASA, uh, what he called privately dismissed as a great department of space. He thought it was sort of silly, but ultimately he understood at that point (laughs) that it was a necessity. Okay. So uh, you write that early on, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, a Republican, remained firm that space exploration served no national security issue. As he told a group of senators earlier, he would, quote, rather have a good redstone rocket than be able to hit the moon because the United States didn't have any enemies on the moon. Thus resolved, Eisenhower permitted the Air Force to continue development of its X-20 program, a manned high-altitude hypersonic bomber that was known without irony as Dinosaur, while putting human spaceflight securely in NASA's domain. I've always wondered, why was this dinosaur program, which was really essentially a space plane, why was that abandoned so quickly by the administration? 
Well, the, the dinosaur, which uh, again, the the fact that the name was developed without irony is a remarkable historical event when you think about it. The <laughs> yeah. dinosaur, um, it, it was it was a plane with a, a kind of identity crisis. It went through many different iterations over a number of years between the late 1950s and when it was ultimately abandoned in 1963. I mean, which is the end of Project Mercury. They were still working away at coming up with some kind of hypersonic jet. Uh, at various points, uh, it was supposed to be a surveillance plane. At various points, it was supposed to be a space fighter, as you said. Uh, it was supposed to ride up on a rocket and then fly itself down, kind of like the space shuttle became ultimately. Right. And and, and it, it, it never really got past the, um, the mock-up phase, despite a lot of investment in it. But the, the larger point that you raise is a, a really important one, and, and one that sets the stage for the story that I tell in the book. And that is that Eisenhower really never was willing to uh, acknowledge, did not see, in fact, that there was a national security interest at stake in space, no matter what the Soviets were able to do up there. Eisenhower had one interest in space and, and really one interest alone, and that was spy satellites, reconnaissance satellites. The thing that Eisenhower was most afraid of was a surprise nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. That's what most people were most afraid of. And he really liked the idea of being able to spy from space where you couldn't have a U-2 plane shot down over the Soviet Union as happened in, in 1960. And so this appealed to him and he was willing to invest in it. But the idea of manned spaceflight, it was, as it was inevitably called at the time, manned space, he didn't see the point. It was, as his science advisor said, Buck Rogers stuff. And it was driven primarily beyond the science fiction writers. It was driven primarily by military planners. Um, and it wasn't just the Air Force, but it was the Navy and the Army all had these notions that they were going to send their men up on the top of rockets or in space planes to do stuff in space. But the doing stuff was never totally worked out. It was... Uh, man in space was this kind of consuming passion uh, without a, a clear mission. And the Army talked about using outer space for, for cargo flights or to move large numbers of troops that they would, you know, send, I guess, a suborbital flight up into space and then come down wherever the battlefield was. So, to use it, so in other words, to use it like a space plane. Exactly. Like the way exactly. we envision okay. today for passenger travel eventually, maybe in 20 years' time. Right, or a space convoy is the way they talked about it. Good gosh. Other military planners had the idea that they would build a, a space station that was armed to the teeth, that was just teeming with, with nuclear missiles. And they were sure, and it wasn't just the military planners, that the Soviets were going to try to do something like that as well. That the Soviets ultimately, what they wanted to do, and this was not based on any particular evidence, it was just based on a lot of surmise and a lot of fear, that the Soviets ultimately would build a, a floating nuclear platform that would just sit in orbit above the United States, like a sort of Damocles above the country, or they would build a nuclear base on the moon. And these sound like outlandish proposals, even you know 60 years later, and yet they were taken very, very seriously at the time, particularly by the military, not by Eisenhower, but by the military. But in truth, aside from a floating nuclear platform, it's easier probably just to deliver your nuclear warhead on a suborbital flight. Or, or to deliver your nuclear warhead from a silo in Irkutsk. It was never really clear why it would be easier in any way to send a nuclear payload all the way from the moon to a target in the United States <laughs> than just to send it from you know, a nuclear submarine or uh, from a nuclear base in, in Siberia. And yet, and yet, it all seemed so fantastical. And after Sputnik, it all seemed to be possible. It all seemed to be coming true and very rapidly to go from this, this little beeping satellite that's, that just dazzled and terrified everyone to the idea of a dog and inevitably a, of, of a man uh, orbiting the Earth. The sense was that this future was coming and, and the Soviets were leading it. So let me uh, ask you this. In your research for the book, was there ever any concern by the Soviets or by the U.S. on what space would actually be like? What would low Earth orbit actually be like once humans got there? In other words, would the relative vacuum of space allow for the maneuverability and control uh, uh, in the spacecraft that would be needed 
Well, let me back into the answer to that last question by starting with this question of, of, of the fears, the concerns about, about human spaceflight. There were so many concerns that were being put out there by the biomedical experts uh, and the psychologists, by the way, um, and psychiatrists, that it, it seemed insane uh, to, to send human beings into space. When you read these lists, this parade of horribles that they expected would happen when you, or would possibly happen when you send someone into space, it's quite incredible that anyone even tried. Can you, they give, were worried give, that, can you give us, yeah, go ahead, give us a couple of examples. Yeah, sure. Well, of course, when they understood just from high-speed plane flight that um, that the the astronauts uh, would be subject to heavy G forces, um, you know, many multiples of the force of gravity as they went up, so there were concerns that it would cause them to black out, that it would put such strain on their organs that perhaps their organs would burst, that it would it would crush them. That, that in space, their nervous systems would fire wildly, causing them to be uh, incapable of, of acting in any way. There was, there was a worry that cosmic, not unreasonably, that cosmic rays would cause cancer and kill them slowly, that the lack of gravity would cause their eyeballs to change shape and they wouldn't be able to see, that they would go mad. That they would gosh. go mad in space. And so coming back to your other question, it's not any wonder that many of the, the original again, biomedical experts involved in what became the space program suggested that if you were going to go ahead and send a human being into space, what you really needed to do was to shoot him up with sedatives before he went up there because <laughs> otherwise he would panic and he would do something terrible. He would take the controls and, 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 uh, and, and, and cause, uh, you know, his own, his own tragedy. So it, it really was seen, um, and, and not unreasonably. I mean, it's easy for us now to look back and see how, how naive and fearful a lot of this was. But the idea of sending a human being into the vacuum of space was a huge, huge deal. And no one knew what it was going to be like, which is why they began the process by sending animals. The Soviets preferred dogs and we preferred monkeys and, and chimpanzees. So in 1958 and 59, there was a lot of talk about a missile gap with the Soviet Union. That, in other words, that the U.S. was lagging behind its, in its ICBM arsenal in comparison to the Soviets. But Eisenhower really didn't think so and was later proved right. However, the Soviets were ahead of us in their ability to launch satellites into low Earth orbit. Why were the Soviets so f much f further ahead of us in terms of their space launch capability? One of the great ironies of the early space program is that the reason, the primary reason that the Soviets were so much better than, than the United States at sending things and heavy things, very heavy things into orbit was because their rockets were kind of backwards and crude. They had not invested anything like what the United States had invested in advancing its uh, range of, in advancing its, the, the, the missiles. Um, uh, that, that would carry nuclear payloads around the world. They had this, it was called the Simyorka rocket, and it was big and it was crude and it was hard to launch and it was hard to direct once it was in flight. It was a big, clumsy, heavy instrument. But the one thing that it did have was a lot of thrust. And so that thing had the power to push very heavy things up into space. And we did not have rockets at that point we had lean and effective rockets and missiles that could carry nuclear payloads where they were supposed to go. That was why they had been developed in the first place. But they weren't powerful enough to lift heavy objects and ultimately heavy objects carrying people into space. So that irony, the backwardness of the Soviet rockets, gave them an advantage early in the space race while we worked uh, at first, uh, not uh, determinedly and then very effectively to build much larger and more powerful missiles like the, the Saturn rockets that carried the Apollo astronauts into to orbit and toward the moon. So the missile gap was something that was widely discussed and, and, and uh, widely accepted as, as fact, including uh, by John Kennedy uh, when he began his campaign for president in 1960. But it, it was, in fact, there was a missile gap. It actually favored the United States. And the CIA understood this. It was not actually 
keen to allow its intelligence reports um, out into the world, into the press, uh, <laughs> because it would give away um, where you know how they were gathering this information and and so forth. But at, at one point in 1960, Kennedy had had talked enough about a missile gap that actually Eisenhower decided to bring him into the fold and have him briefed on the actual facts of the situation. Um, Kennedy was suspicious that he was being spun by Eisenhower's people who were obviously in favor of Richard Nixon, not John Kennedy getting elected in 1960. So Kennedy continued to talk about the the missile gap. But while the the missile gap was a, a bit of a myth, the space gap was very real. And it was there for all to see. I, I talked earlier about the, the incredible firsts that the Soviet Union was achieving one after the other. And they would wind up on the front page of the paper. Every, and they, would, they would be the, the topic of conversation across the nation and across the world. And so the Soviets had a substantial lead in space. And after a little while, you know, 1958, 1959, the United States began to catch up in certain respects and that it was sending a whole lot of satellites up into space and very successfully. It was sending early communication satellites. It was sending meteorological satellites to uh, look at weather systems and to understand them better. And so Nixon in 1960 um, actually went out on the campaign trail and said, we have a higher space score, as he put it, than the Soviet Union. But good luck convincing anybody that that was actually the case. It didn't matter (laughs) to most people how many meteorological satellites we had sent up. The Soviets seemed to be on the verge of sending a human being up, and that was what really mattered. So as I uh, write in Forbes, the uh, NASA introduced its seven Mercury program astronauts to the media on April 9th, 1959. But uh, John Glenn, arguably the most famous of the original Mercury 7, uh, was famous in part because he achieved national fame in 1957, two years before the newly minted NASA introduced the seven. Glenn made headlines on July 16, 1957, when he piloted an FAU Crusader supersonic aircraft from Los Alamitos, California, to Brooklyn, New York's Floyd Bennett Field. And even with three precision mid-air refuelings en route, Glenn made the transcontinental trip in three hours and 23 minutes and 8.3 seconds. That was an incredible feat for that time. But did this recognition in 57 give Glenn the edge over the other six astronauts? It it gave him the edge in in a number of of key ways. I mean, first of all, uh, that fame that you described is not something that very many pilots ever get to achieve. And the other six astronauts, um, when they were introduced with Glenn to the world in April of 1959, most of the other six had never really been in front of a microphone, let alone a TV camera or a newsreel camera. It was all extremely disorienting and kind of terrifying for some of them, frankly. They were very uncomfortable in in that sort of press melee. Glenn had lived it all before. Glenn was a natural in a way that, that none of the others were in the first place, but he also had this experience. He had this comfort level, and he was also known to the press. He was known to the reporters for the reason that you described, that achievement of his, that speed record he set in 1957. It wasn't just that he set the speed record, but he, he wound up on, on the front page of every newspaper in the country and on the wires, and, and he was just omnipresent in the United States in, in July 1957. And as a result, CBS invited him to be a contestant on a game show they had, uh, which maybe some people will remember, called Name That Tune. Oh, yeah. And he, he wound up appearing uh, for weeks on Name That Tune with the blessing of the Marines and, and the Navy, uh, who were happy to have him sort of milk this as long as he was able, this achievement, um, which, uh, by the way, beat an Air Force record. So they were very happy to have Glenn <laughs> getting a lot of attention for this. And so Glenn competed uh, with his partner on the show, a, an eight-year-old boy named Eddie Hodges, and they kept winning. And they were an amazing couple. They were sort of uh, like a, a, you know, a they were like a stage act, the, the two of them. They were hilarious. They sang. They they followed the script beautifully, and they improvised beautifully. And so Glenn was was really a superstar. And so when he walked out on that stage in April 1959 with the other astronauts, everybody knew Glenn. All eyes went to Glenn, and most of the the press uh, went right into his corner. Uh, he he um 
He had a rooting section in the nation's press. And so this was a, an important edge in a lot of ways, but I'll tell you where it was not so much an edge, and that was within NASA itself, where there was a lot of resentment immediately toward Glenn, not just on the part of the astronauts, but also on the part of some of uh, the NASA officials who felt that Glenn was too big for his britches, that he was seeking this kind of attention, not that it was seeking him, but that he was seeking it. And, um, and they didn't like it. And even though they continued to put him out there because he was so brilliant at, at PR, they continued to resent it. To be fair to John Glenn, though, uh, he did do incredibly well in the testing phase of the of the training. You you noted that uh, when the astronauts were sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to go undergo uh, stress and fatigue tests, some experiments uh, had seemingly had you right had no ostensible purpose but to see how far a person could be pushed before they cracked. Tell us about the pitch black isolation chamber. I mean, that just gives me the creeps. <laughs> if it were me, I'd just have to say, "Hey guys, uh, I'll check you later." Uh, I think yeah. I'm going to take. A, I think I'm going to go work in a bank or something. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> right. like a very reasonable, healthy response. I, just, you know, I, I just was, don't want to. I just don't want to work in a bank vault. But okay. So anyway, right, it would be more like that. That's so this right. was an um, an, an anechoic room that not only dampened but absorbed sound denying the inner ear the cues it needs in order to maintain equilibrium well the, the crazy thing as you said about an anechoic room is not just that it's dark and not just that it's silent but but because it absorbs sound as you said it it, it messes with your inner ear and and it, it's actually very difficult I'm told I've not had this experience myself thankfully but that it's it's very difficult to to stand up I mean, people just fall over. It, it destroys their sense of, of balance. Um, and so this was one of these <laughs> sadistic tests that were imposed on, on the yeah. a- astronaut <laughs> candidates. <laughs> sadistic. I, he used the term sadistic. <laughs> well, it, you know, there's, it's very difficult to, to come up with any either uh, uh, physiological or psychological justification for some of the stuff that they made these these guys do. I, I've gotten to know an absolutely wonderful guy, uh, really one of the unsung heroes of, of the space program, a guy named Robert Vos, and he was a Navy psychologist. And he actually helped to, to come up with the, the list of criteria by which they would choose the astronauts and actually help to choose John Glenn. And um, he's uh, an amazing guy who, who um, tells phenomenal stories. And it was a huge help to me in, in um, my work on this book. And one of the things that Bob Vos said to me is that he said, I, I think that they, a lot of these psychologists would sort of rub their hands together and they were just excited by the chance to, to, just run a bunch of experiments on human beings <laughs> and oh, it was kind of pigs, anything goes anything goes good because who gosh. knew what space was like so you you could put them through anything so back to this anechoic room so the astronauts were were told one by one the candidates they weren't astronauts yet that they would go into the room and the door would be closed and locked and that was all they were told they weren't told what they were supposed to do they weren't told how long they were going to be in there. You just go in this room and, and we'll let you out at some point. So was it <laughs> going to be gosh. 10 minutes? Was it going to be all day? Nobody really knew. So, so Glenn went into the room and um, he sort of felt his way around the room and he found a desk and a chair in there. And he sat in his very, and this is very much what John Glenn was like, very calm, very rational and thought, now how am I going to use this time? I could just put my head down and fall asleep but uh, and ride this out. But I don't think that's what they want from me. I don't think they want to see me fall asleep. I, th- I think they want to see what I kind of do at this time and am I capable of making use of it. So he thought, how am I going to prevent myself from falling asleep? It's pretty hot in here. Um, maybe I'll do some exercises. And then he thought, no, that's just going to make me hotter. So he came to the conclusion that he needed to do some mental exercises. He would come up with lists of things and see how many things he could remember. Um, he felt his way around this desk and he found a pad of paper. And he, fortunately, he had a pencil in his pocket. So he thought, I'm going to write in the darkness on this pad. I'm going to write some poetry. And he would position his finger at the edge of the page so he knew where the line would start. And then he would write a line of poetry. And then he would slide his finger down to the next line 
he was estimating the distance and then he would write another line and, and he did this at great length and I, I don't think the poetry is going to win any awards, but um, it was credible poetry. Yeah, and, I saw that. Um, it's in your book. I mean, it is, it is it's incredible that under such duress, he could create any sort of poetry. I mean, that's the last thing probably I would have thought of doing is is uh, is, is is sitting there and, and trying to write poetry. But, uh, I mean, that, that, that shows an amazing kind of presence of mind and control over his own emotions. Absolutely. That is a perfect way of putting it. Um, his self-control was, was profound um, and his refusal to, to his inability to panic. Um, he just, he, he had been in much tougher situations in the air over uh, North Korea during the war and World War II. And, and so sitting in this room, he found it sort of comforting. He found it kind of reflective. Um, he spent three hours in there. He actually was able to estimate exactly how much time he spent in there. And mm -hmm. it was three hours and he was Good. let out. Yeah. And, and, um, and I have to tell you, I, I had known about this. Um, before I went to do my research at the Glenn Archives at Ohio State, and I was going through his papers, and and there they were, the sheets of paper from the Anacook room. And I opened up a folder, and and I held these in my hand, and you can see the lines of poetry shooting off at all directions, <laughs> a little bit sloppier than his usual handwriting because he's writing in the dark. And uh, you know, John Glenn saved everything, which is a great gift to a historian like me. And um, and there they were, these pages. So in your book, you mention a peer poll that was given to all seven astronauts, and this is actually, they were actually chosen, uh, to name who they thought should be at the top, should be the top three in order to go into space first. In other words, they were not allowed to vote for themselves. They had to pick three of the other astronauts. I, I didn't see who won the poll. Did uh, No, no, you, you, um, you didn't miss it. Um, uh, I think the results of that peer vote um, have either been lost or hidden or destroyed. Um, oh, is that right? Uh, I'm not sure anybody held on to those those ballots in the end. I found a blank ballot, and I, I describe in the book what what was on the ballot, and what they were supposed to do is is rank three astronauts who they thought in order who they thought were worthy of being the first in space, and it said. We know that you would choose yourself first, so don't include yourself on the list. John Glenn and, and Scott Carpenter, who were the closest of, of the astronauts in, in their, the astronauts tended to divide along um, a, a line between five uh, who, were, who were pretty close on one side, kind of uh, led ostensibly by, by Alan Shepard, and then the other two were, were Glenn and, and Carpenter. So. They had an understanding that they were each going to vote for for one another, um, but nobody nobody knows who won the peer vote. And and actually, one of the questions that I still have um, is whether it mattered the peer vote. It mattered to John Glenn for reasons I'll explain in a second. But you know, the the NASA managers had a had a very as you would expect a very well developed process by which um, they were going to decide who flew first and, and what the fl flight order would be. They had been testing these astronauts for almost two years. They had been putting them through training. They had been putting them through simulations. They had observed them in a million different conditions. And uh, they had also come to understand their personalities and all sorts of things. And so there were, uh, for a period of days, these various experts who had been involved in the training were making presentations to Bob Gilruth, who was the head of the space task group and the guy who ran the show. And Gilruth kind of kept his own counsel and, and didn't say what he was thinking. Then in the middle of this, they offered the astronauts this peer vote, gave them this chance to weigh in. But it's not clear whether that changed Gilruth's mind in any way, whether it confirmed his thinking, um, whether it contradicted it, and it was just a pro forma exercise. But the reason that it was important to John Glenn is this. He felt certain that he was going to be the first. He was not only the most famous and most beloved by the public and the press, but he believed, as they each believed in themselves, of themselves, that he was the best pilot in the bunch. And he was quite certain that he was going to come out on top. And when he didn't, it was a terrible blow to his his confidence. Um, it was a huge shock to the system. And, um, and he had a hard time, he couldn't explain it. And, and one of the only explanations that he could come up with was that it was this peer vote. 
He knew that he was unpopular with most of the other astronauts. He knew they resented him, not only because of his fame, but because he insisted that the rest of them ought to live by his moral code, which um, mainly centered around the fact that he was faithful to his wife. I mean, that wasn't the center of his moral code. There were other elements in there as well. But that was the issue among the astronauts, was that that the other five who I described uh, were perfectly happy to be doing, uh, you know, uh, going out and, and, you know, having kind of wild evenings out with women who were not their wives. And John Glenn told them that they were putting not only their own reputations, but the entire program, and therefore, in many ways, the nation at risk. And they didn't take to that kind of lecturing from Glenn, and they resented it. So Glenn felt that the peer vote was their opportunity at revenge and that they had taken it. There's not, not actually any proof of that, but that was certainly something that Glenn believed. But maybe there's another reason that uh, NASA uh, did not choose Glenn f- for the first flight, and maybe that's because the first flight would be a sorb- suborbital flight. It's just 15 minutes up and down, and maybe they thought that Glenn was a better pilot, uh, the best pilot of the seven, and they wanted Glenn to do the first orbital flight because they would be... You know, more need to actually exert control over the air over the spacecraft well this this was widely assumed and it was in a way the only way the public and the press could make sense of the fact that that glenn wasn't picked first as you said the first flight and it turned out the second flight as well which was taken by gus grissom were suborbital flights up and down 15 minutes not actually that challenging i mean any space flight was challenging but not compared to actually orbiting the earth and so Glenn was made the backup for both of those flights, but wasn't given a flight of his own. And after those first two flights happened, for reasons that um, that we can discuss, NASA decided to accelerate the orbital uh, phase of, of Project Mercury. And that, that was when Glenn finally got an assignment. And so Glenn got what they all refer to as the big one. And everybody said, and, and I found letters to Glenn from from old friends saying, I get it now. They were saving you, John, for the big one. They were saving you for the big one. And maybe he took some comfort in that. But I think that he knew that that wasn't the case. That at the beginning, all of the energy was focused on becoming the first in space. That was all anybody cared about at first. They did understand that the orbital flight was a bigger deal than a suborbital flight. But they also felt, and the press encouraged this, not just the press in the U.S., but around the world, that the first person in space was going to become the new Columbus, they would always say. You know, this was the explorer who set out on this new frontier, and that person would be immortal. And so they all wanted that job. They all wanted to go first. It didn't matter that it was just a mere suborbital flight. There was the chance of making history. Then the Soviets beat us to the punch, and Yuri Gagarin in April 1961 not only became the first man in space, but he actually orbited the Earth. The Soviets jumped right to the to the orbital flights. And we were still behind because our rockets weren't ready. We were still using the redstone that you mentioned earlier, and the redstone was not powerful enough to get a capsule with a man in it into orbit. We had to wait for the Atlas rocket to be ready, and those things kept exploding on the launch pad. So, so we were behind. So the fact that Glenn wound up with the first orbital flight was, was happenstance. It was actually supposed to be another suborbital flight, but the the U.S. had been embarrassed enough um, over enough uh, of a period of time that it just decided we we have to we have to move forward to the to the orbitals, and so Glenn got the first one. But it did seem again to just suddenly make sense. That's why he didn't get those first couple of flights because they were saving him. But I don't think that was the case. As I write in Forbes uh, in September 1959, the Soviets Luna two. Uh, spacecraft became the first man-made object to successfully strike the moon. And as the Mer- Mercury 7 were touring the West Coast on meeting greets for NASA space contractors, basically, Soviet Premier uh, Nikita Khrushchev began a 13-day U.S. visit to, among other things, rubbing the fact that the Soviet Union was so far ahead, as you mentioned. And he presented uh, Eisenhower with a medallion inscribed with the Soviet hammer and sickle and the words, USSR September 1959. This was this medallion was actually s- s- crashed into the moon by the the Soviets with their Luna 2. And um, you write 
that after reading about this, a Roman Catholic bishop in New York said it had the psychological impact of Hitler's march into Poland. Was this just hyperbole or uh, on the bishop's part? Well, it, it certainly was hyperbole, but, but these were the stakes as people understood them at the time. There was uh, Lyndon Johnson when he, he held hearings after, after on, on Capitol Hill after Sputnik uh, described an atmosphere of another Pearl Harbor after the, the first and then the second Sputnik flights. And that was a very common analogy, these, these, these wartime, uh, these, these references to the war and, and to these great and shocking events of Pearl Harbor, of Hitler's march into Poland. And there was the, the sense that the Soviets were seizing territory, that the moon, which had never been touched by any object from Earth of any kind, that they, they crash-landed they purposely crash landed this craft into the moon. They were not yet at this point able to sort of soft land something on the moon, but everybody expected that will be coming very soon. And it was not a coincidence that what that craft was carrying were these little medallions that that Khrushchev kept referring to as pennants. What is a pennant? A pennant is a flag. And nobody missed the symbolism. They weren't supposed to miss the symbolism. They were supposed to get the symbolism <laughs> that the that the Soviet Union was planting its flag on the moon. And there was some discussion in the newspapers and the New York Times about whether the Soviets, by planting their flag on the moon at its unclaimed territory, to, was the moon now Soviet territory? Nobody really took that possibility that seriously, but they had to think about it a little bit. And so there was a lot of fear. And, and so I, I think that while it was certainly hyperbole, I think the fear was, was in earnest. Uh, John Kennedy in 1960, when he was running for president, said, uh, if the Soviets control space, they can control Earth. And that was a widespread feeling. Lyndon Johnson said something very much like that. Uh, it was a, a pretty consensus view across the United States and the free world. So anyway, on May 5th, 1961, uh, the Mercury Redstone 3 launcher fire rose from the pad and Alan Shepard did his 15-minute suborbital flight, and Americans were finally in space. So the question is, should the U.S. have just simply gone for a orbital flight, a full orbit on the first attempt? The U.S. just wasn't ready. It, it, it would have been a, an enormous risk even to try to do that. Um, the, the, the Redstone just didn't have enough thrust to, to get all the way into space. So the Redstone was just literally physically not capable of putting Alan Shepard uh, in that capsule and Freedom 7 into orbit. And so they would have had to go with the Atlas. And the Atlas, as I mentioned earlier, was a really troubled rocket. It had done a you know, perfectly fine job as an ICBM uh, for, for the Air Force. But uh, that was when you put a, a, a payload on top of it, a nuclear payload on top of it. When you put a, a space capsule on top of it, which of course is configured very differently, and then you put a, a human being inside that thing, it, it it was it was not it was not going very well. Um, thankfully, they they hadn't put any human beings in it yet because it was clear that the 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 Atlas rocket was was not as as the they put it uh, the term of art man rated. It was not ready to be ridden by by a human being. These things kept exploding. And so if you had decided to just go for it and put a capsule on top of an atlas, uh, I, I don't think that would have been an acceptable risk on the part of anybody in, the, in NASA or the U.S. government at that point. We just weren't ready. Let's uh, fast forward to uh, June of 1961 and the famous summit uh, between Khrushchev and Kennedy in Vienna. Uh, you write that Khrushchev pledged to support wars of liberation in every part of the world, uh, he threatened repeatedly to seize West Berlin. He approved construction of a concrete wall to divide the city, the famous Berlin Wall. And then he resumed nuclear testing over the plains of Central Asia, this high-altitude atmospheric testing. What were all these tests in Central Asia about? That Was that just a campaign of intimidation? It was absolutely a campaign of intimidation. Um, they were exploding... Bombs that were much larger, frankly, than, law, than bombs needed to be to be useful in, in war and in a nuclear exchange, much uh, more powerful than you, they needed to be to destroy a city, an American city. So 
intimidation was very much the the order of the day. Um, but I, I want to just make a larger point about this important question that you just asked. Why are we talking about Berlin in a book about space or in a conversation about space? Why are we talking about nuclear testing over the plains of Central Asia in a book about, about the space race? It's for this reason, and this really is the reason ultimately that I wrote the book. I read a lot of books about space in which the Cold War is just sort of atmosphere. And I read a lot of books about the Cold War that reference the space race. But generally, we tend to treat these things as, as two different storylines. But as they were understood at the time, as they were experienced at the time, they were all part, they were in the same frame. They happened in the same moment. And they were part of the same threat. And so for, for Kennedy, for Kennedy's cabinet, and also for, for most Americans, the fact that the Soviets in August of 1961 began to explode these nuclear bombs and to break the, 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 the agreement that they'd had, the moratorium that had been that had held since 1958. The fact that the Soviets in that same month began to build the wall in Berlin to permanently divide that city. And the fact that the Soviets sent their second man into orbit in the same month who orbited the earth for 24 hours, whereas Gagarin had only done so for 90 minutes. All of these things were connected. They were all part of this three-dimensional threat that existed on Earth, in the atmosphere, and in space. And so Kennedy had to assess the threat as part of the same picture. And again, that was how it was seen at the time. So this is what all of this has to do with, with one another. And I think that we can't understand why the space race mattered as it did until we understand it in the context of the Cold War. But you do reference in a book, in your book, a JFK quote, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, that alludes to the fact that good faith negotiations don't always help if your negotiating counterpart is completely unreasonable. <laughs> I assume right. I assume right. he was talking about <laughs> Khrushchev. And so I've always wondered about this because, you know, there's that incident, I think, at the when he made the speech to the UN General Assembly uh, and he pounds his shoe uh, on the on the lectern, was Khrushchev a mental case? I mean, was he mentally unbalanced? Well, it's it's a very good question, um, and uh, I'm neither a, a psychiatrist nor nor the armchair variety. But I will say this: I think there was a heavy uh, performative element element for for Khrushchev. There, uh, in in many uh, of these moments, he knew exactly what he was doing, um, and. This was part of that intimidation that you mentioned earlier. So he was um, a showman. In other words, he was. It was a. It was a show for him. You think? It was a show for him. And uh, Vienna, which you mentioned a minute ago, which was the the, the summit between Kennedy and Khrushchev in June 1961, is a, is a case in point. Kennedy really didn't understand Khrushchev very well, and he prepared very earnestly and very carefully for that summit. Kennedy did with all sorts of proposals and arguments and so forth. And he was ready to engage in a rational discussion with Khrushchev. He knew it would be tough. He knew Khrushchev was not just going to roll over for him, but he did believe that he could have a rational discussion. And Khrushchev uh, absolutely refused to allow that to happen. And so he would pick up on something that Kennedy said and launch into a sort of violent, not physically violent, but verbally violent attack and go on and monologue at great length. So was this a crazy man or was this somebody who was wearing Kennedy down very deliberately, browbeating him, intimidating him, which he did very successfully? I mean, he just rendered Kennedy speechless almost ultimately. He so overpowered him as a matter of personality. So a lot of this um, was, you know, was Khrushchev totally rational and, and totally deliberate? Maybe not. But he also was more in control of himself in those moments when he looked like he wasn't than I think people assumed. So in August of 61, the Soviets successfully launched a 24-hour orbital mission to prove that humans can fall asleep in space aboard the Vostok 2 spacecraft, circling the Earth for 17 and a half orbits. German Titov taunted the U.S. by traveling a distance, equaling a trip farther than to the moon and back, he write. Then in a veil threat, 
uh, Khrushchev recalls that Vostok 2 did not carry atom bombs or other armaments for killing, but peaceful instruments. But obviously, he wants us to connect the dots. Uh, exactly. Then you uh, you reference a poem titled Fall 1961, in which Robert Lowell captured the national state of mind, kind of that fall of 61. He, he writes, All autumn, the chafe and jar of nuclear war, we have talked our extinction to death. This was a very low and a, and a very dark moment, and it coincided with a, a long kind of gap in our own space program. As I mentioned, um, Gus Grissom went up uh, in July of, of, of 19, I'm sorry, in, in June of, of 1961, and Glenn uh, was supposed to go up and orbit the Earth, but nobody could quite say when, and Months were following months, and the Soviets were continuing to do dazzling things in space. Uh, you described that 24-hour orbital mission, and I should just pause to say, why, why was it significant that he could fall asleep in space? Well, if you're going to travel to the moon, at some point you're going to have to be able to fall asleep in space, and nobody knew whether that was even possible to that point. So the Soviets made a real point of, uh, as Titov flew over Moscow, as he orbited over Moscow, one of one of these many times that he went around the earth, he said, good night, Moscow, I'm going to sleep now. <laughs> he actually had a hard time falling asleep. He had all sorts of trouble on that flight. He had vertigo. He was nauseated. He didn't sleep very well, but he did fall. And But that was suppressed. That, that, that was kept secret. What the world did know was that he was able to fall asleep at a certain point, which meant that the Soviets had proven something about longer distance spaceflight and the trip ultimately to the moon. So all of this uh, was was happening at a time of a, a profound uh, insecurity on the part of the United States. Titov's flight, the Berlin Wall, the nuclear tests, that is what Robert Lowell is describing in that powerful poem. We have talked our extinction to death. Kennedy gave a, a very sobering speech that fall that sent Americans uh, quite deliberately to the fallout shelters, to building fallout shelters. He actually provided a whole bunch more federal money for, for civil defense. And Life Magazine was publishing architectural plans for how to build yourself a fallout shelter underneath your, your, your backyard or adjacent to your basement. It was, it was very serious what, what was uh, thought to be going on. And the ability of Titov to do what he did in space was, was seen as a big part of it. And all of this talk from, from Khrushchev about whether or not Vostok would be able to, to carry uh, atom bombs or other armaments for killing, simply by raising the question, raised the fear. And that was the intention. So uh, on February 20th, uh, 1962, the Mercury Friendship 7 uh, space capsule essentially designed to fly itself uh, was launched atop a Mercury Atlas rocket at 9.47 a.m. with John Glenn aboard. So this spacecraft on orbit had begun to drift. Uh, Glenn made three successful full orbits of the Earth, but it had begun to drift. I think it was on the this, this second orbit or third orbit, I don't know. Yeah, beginning of the second orbit, yeah. You're right, it was kind of like a, a car with its front wheels out of alignment, and Mercury Control asked if he had heard any banging noises <laughs> and it's like wow i mean you think about it you're a man alone in space uh, on the first uh, american orbital flight and in all your training there have been no mention of banging noises <laughs> yeah not what you want to hear <laughs> it's not what you want to hear <laughs> so, so the uh, the mercury control suspected there was a loose heat shield that 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 meant that Glenn could lose would lack protection against a three thousand against the three thousand degree heat of reentry. You write noting that as the capsule came down, he would essentially burn up. But did Glenn actually know it was a, the uh, the heat shield? No, because they refused to tell him. And uh, this was a bone of contention between Glenn and Mission Control while he was up there, and it was a bone of contention uh, ever afterward. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But these are actually two, two different problems. They were unrelated, um, but they happened right at the same time. And that is, as you described, at the end of the first orbit, 
the 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 spacecraft the capsule started to to skate to the right and then what would happen was that the automatic thrusters would kick in to push it back uh into alignment and then it would drift again and then the thrusters would kick in again so it was going back and forth like this and wasting a lot of fuel so glenn understood immediately that he needed to take over manual control and on a certain level, he had no problem with that. It wasn't in the flight plan. It wasn't supposed to happen, obviously. You don't want anything to go wrong when you're in space. But these astronauts always wanted to fly this capsule. And they never liked the idea of just sitting up there, flipping switches while the autopilot did all the work. And so being able to fly the capsule was not the worst thing in the world from Glenn's perspective. But then there was that other problem that you mentioned. And around the same time, at the end of the first orbit, a little warning light went on at mission control. And that warning light suggested that, as you said, Bruce, that the heat shield was, was coming loose a little bit, that it was starting to, to separate a little bit from the capsule. That's something that was supposed to happen after it did its work, after it protected Glenn and the capsule on its way back through the, the intense heat of the atmosphere, 3,000 degrees. And just before it splashed down, in the sea, it was supposed to detach a little bit to cushion the blow. But it was not supposed to detach in space for exactly the reason that you said. If it separates even a little bit and there's just the tiniest sliver, sliver of a separation between the heat shield and the rest of the capsule, then it's going to incinerate on its way back to the atmosphere. And so this is what mission control or some in mission control thought was happening, but they didn't know whether the signal was right. And so they began to ask Glenn these leading questions to see if they could figure it out without telling him what was going on. So they asked him, as you said, do you hear any banging noises? And the answer was, no, um, <laughs> I don't. And then a little while went on and they began to ask other kinds of leading questions. And over time, Glenn started to think, okay, something's going wrong. They're not telling me what it is. It seems to have something to do with the heat shield, but they won't say it. And this goes on really for the rest of the flight. In mission control, they spend the last two of Glenn's three orbits in a, in a, in a cold panic, with many of them thinking that he's doomed, that he mm. cannot possibly make it back alive and that there's nothing that they can do to save him. But they're going to have that debate, and that's what they do. And at the end, though, obviously he made it safely back. Can we assume that the heat shield was never loose? We can assume the heat shield was never loose. They were able to diagnose the problem um, when uh, the, the capsule was brought back safely. And it was a faulty switch, which uh, it, was, it was sending a faulty signal. Mm -hmm. And um, Glenn couldn't see it, but they could see it, as I said, in mission control. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was all about. Um, but uh, they, they couldn't be sure. Um, and uh, as a result, they, they really felt that Telling Glenn would cause Glenn to panic, and so they wouldn't let him in on it. And as I said um, uh, a moment ago, uh, that made him extraordinarily angry, and there were some very heated uh, arguments about this after he got, got back. So as I write in Forbes, uh, looking back from the safety of, of decades of retrospection, Americans often take for granted that the space race with the Soviet Union was all destined to go our way. Please give us some insight into the speed of policymaking in the White House because you've been there uh, regardless of, of administration. What doesn't the general public appreciate about how space policy is actually made on the executive level? I think space policy is made very gradually for the most part and then all at once. Uh, it is very difficult, I think, for any administration, and this was true of Eisenhower's, this was true of Kennedy's, it was true of subsequent administrations, and it might well be true of the current administration, that sp space policies, incremental space, uh, the space program is insufficiently funded, there's insufficient interest by the public, there's insufficient funding by Congress, and then something happens, and everybody wakes up. And that might be a disaster, like uh, the the loss of, of two shuttles, um, or the fire uh, that, that that killed three astronauts in Apollo One, um, or it might be a challenge uh, from a foreign power. And we've talked about how that happened after Sputnik, and how it happened after the flight of Gagarin in 1961. Um, what will that be in the future? 
Um, it's an interesting and maybe a little a bit of a worrisome question, but I think we got a uh, we we got a uh, a hint of that uh, not that long ago when the new NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, was testifying virtually or remotely before a congressional committee. And he was talking about the need for the United States to step up and meet the challenge in space. And how did he make his case? He held up in front of his webcam, he held up a photograph of the Chinese lander that, that just showed up on Mars. And he said, this is what we're up against. We're not alone on Mars. We have to accept uh, the challenge as it's being posed to us. And so it may be that... Um, Seeing somebody from another country uh, land on the moon after the United States um, uh, uh, as, as last done so uh, almost almost half a century ago, maybe that will be the, the, the wake-up call that propels space policy in the future. So how do you respond to people who seemingly have no interest in our past space history or in the Cold War? Well, it, it's it's tough to to get people interested in in pockets of history that they're they're not, not naturally drawn to. But I, I would say this that um, this all sounds very remote now. The space race. Um, I mean, this was generations ago, and as it, it has been, as I said, a almost a half century since since anybody last set foot on the moon, and most of the the men who who, who walked there have, have since passed away. The Cold War. Is, is something that, that ended a long time ago before a lot of people, in fact, were born. And yet the challenge that the Soviets posed in space and the challenge that the Americans faced in space, the challenge of, of, of a Cold War uh, where a typically slow-moving democratic system of government is, is challenged by a dictatorship or, or an autocracy these are not remote history. These are the present tense. And so understanding what Eisenhower and what Kennedy faced and how they answered that, understanding uh, how, as the NASA administrator under Kennedy, uh, James Webb and under Johnson uh, said, uh, this is how a great nation uh, solves a great problem. Uh, that these are all very relevant questions in our own time. And so understanding, again, the lessons of history, uh, they won't tell us what to do, but they're instructive nonetheless. So what goes through your own head when you look up at the moon on the clear night sky? Gosh, well, I will say I never take it for granted. Anytime I, I step outside and I see it in whatever phase it is, I always stop and look at it. I never see it without marveling at the fact that, that human beings were able to, to reach it and set foot and, and walk on it. That has never ceased to, to dazzle me, uh, the beauty of it and also what it has meant. Jeff, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or to learn more? I do. Um, the best way to find me is um, uh, I, I am on Twitter, like most of us these days, um, and it's at Jeff Shessel, which is um, my name. Uh, and also, uh, I have a, a, a Twitter account dedicated to what we've been talking about here today, at Mercury Rising Book, but just BK, at Mercury Rising BK. Um, and a website as well, MercuryRisingBK.com. And so... Uh, you can learn more about this book. Um, you can get in touch with me via the website. You can send me an email there. Uh, and you can keep up with um, conversations like this one. I'll be posting links. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Jeff Shessel, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of the Cold War history behind the U.S.'s earliest efforts in space. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>